I wonder if you've had the same experience I have all the time, that you're in the middle of talking about something to someone, but you need to interrupt yourself for a moment in order to talk about something else real quick. You're uh, interrupting yourself to digress. Something has come to mind, okay? So you were initially talking about one thing, and here you are, and something triggers in your mind, and you think, well, I need to say something about this too while I'm at it. And then you're hoping that you'll remember what you were talking about at first, and that's a whole other thing. I don't do that as well, and maybe that's true for you too. That's because our words are just in the air, and it's easier to forget what we're talking about when we go into a digression. Tell you what's much easier to remember what you're talking about is when you were writing it out all along. That's why when the Apostle Paul engages in a digression, he can always resume right back to the subject that he was initially talking about at the first. And what we're doing today and next Sunday is looking at verses 8 and following, which deal with a digression. In verses 8 to 11, this is part of a digression that is prompted by what Paul has just said. This is not the main point he wants to get across in chapter 1. He's mainly wanting to charge Timothy to stop certain people from misusing the law. These people who have posed themselves as competent teachers, but he said in verse 7, they actually don't know what they're talking about. They actually don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand the words they're saying. And Timothy, I need you to stop them. I need you to tell them to stop because they're, they're diverting from the sound teaching of the faith. And as they divert and people start to follow their diversion, other problems will ensue. He wants Timothy to be bold and courageous and to do what would be difficult and awkward, but for the spiritual health of the church in Ephesus. And what he said at the end of verse 7 seems to prompt this small digression in verses 8 to 11. I must say that a digression is by no means the same thing as something that's irrelevant. In fact, when we read verses 8 to 11, we see how important it is to know and believe every word he says in these four verses. He's going to resume an earlier thought in short order after that. In verses 8 through 11, we see Paul mentioning the law. And at the end of verse 7, he talked about those desiring to teach the law, though without understanding. They don't understand what they're saying or about which they make their confident assertions. And you just imagine what happens in our minds as we write and as we speak. Here Paul has used the language about law. He's like, okay, something else I want to say about the law before I go on about the charge and, and what you need to keep in mind and further exhortations. Let's just talk about the law for a moment. And in church history, theologians and commentators have written much about the Old Testament law. Thinking about how to read it and interpret it. Thinking about how to connect it to our Christian faith and what it means for a new covenant believer in Jesus to go back and to read and understand the Old Testament law. How ought it to be taught? What is clear is that aside from many of the ways believers have tried to think through the relationship of the law to the Christian faith, these teachers in Ephesus are getting it wrong. They are mishandling the law. They are presuming to be some kind of competent teacher, and they're not. And he does insist in verse 8, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, let's make a broad statement then about these, these, these figures in Ephesus who are causing some issue. They are using the law unlawfully. They're using the law unlawfully. Paul says, well, the law is good. 
If you're using it lawfully, it's going to have its uh, clarity and effect in the hearts of sinners that it ought to. That's not what these teachers in Ephesus are apparently doing. When theologians in church history have considered the law, they have written in what can sometimes be categorized as three uses of the law. So this would be helpful to think about for a moment. One use of the law that is established because of how we see the scriptures talking about the law is that the law of God exists to proclaim boundaries for sinners in societies. In other words, there is a restraining aspect that the law of God has for the wicked. Because the wicked are not as wicked as they could be and would no doubt engage in much more transgressions than they otherwise do if there were no penalties or consequences or pressures externally and socially for proper behavior. We could say that in the uses of the law throughout church history, we can see a restraining aspect to the law. One of the things that the commands of God do is is upon the lives of the wicked in a culture, it is never as egregious a situation as it could be because in God's common grace, one one, uh, function of the law is to restrain the wicked. A second use of the law that has been identified, and it was especially important to Martin Luther and the Reformers, was the law of God not only as a restrainer, but as a mirror. The law of God as a mirror. Thinking about the law of God as a mirror for the guilty matters because here the law of God is holy, righteous, and good. And what we discover quite quickly in looking at the laws of God is that while the law of God is perfect, wise, and good, it shows that I am not. It shows and reveals that in the face of the law of God, I fall short. I fail to be all that God has called me to be and to worship the Lord rightly and to speak and to act in ways that are holy and righteous. We are lawbreakers. So one of the things we find in this second use of the law is that it not only has a restraining aspect, but a revelatory one, like a mirror in which we see the truth of our sinful condition. The Martin Luther would call God's law a mighty hammer that would crush the self-righteousness of sinners. He He loved the image of the law having a devastating effect where sinners might, might think of their own hearts as, you know, no, no, I'm not quite so bad. And especially compared to her, compared to him. I'm doing quite well. And Luther says, no, in front of the law, the law crushes us in our self-righteousness. It does not permit sinners who come guilty before the law to behold the law and then leave feeling quite good about themselves. Instead, we come face to face with the truth of our sinful condition. As theologians have identified these uses of the law, we can recognize the value culturally and socially around the world of the wicked having in their conscience and in law codes around the world commands that restrain otherwise more sinful impulses that would be enacted. Or like a mirror, as the gospel is preached, the law of God helps us see its necessity. The good news is needed for sinners because face to face with our condition, we are guilty. There is a third use of the law. A third use of the law, this one quite important to John Calvin and others after him, that the law can serve as a guide for the believer who is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he means here is the law is not a ground of righteousness. 
It is not a means of salvation. No one comes to the law in their sinful state and then keeps the law and is justified. The law is a guide for the believer because as we flee to Christ for salvation, the word of God, including his law, reveals his good and wise moral will for his image bearers. So we find benefit in reading the law of God because as we are saved by grace, we are brought from death to life and are empowered to follow the Lord Jesus in obedience. That means we do not pit against each other, believing the gospel and obedience. We say that as we are trusting Christ, the living Christ has made us new in him. And now in Christ, the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled. In Jeremiah 31, those who would know the Lord, those in the new covenant, have the law of God written upon their hearts. So we don't care less about the law in coming to know Christ. We think to ourselves, By the Holy Spirit and through the power of the gospel, we are saved by grace to now walk in faithfulness before God. These three uses of the law are very, well, useful, for lack of a better word. And uh, the restraining aspect of the law, its value to reveal like a mirror our guilt and our need. And thirdly, as a guide for the believer who has not only trusted Christ for salvation, but whose heart now is animated by the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience before God according to his moral will. Now, all of that, we have not even looked at a single phrase in verses 8 to 11. I realize that, but we have to think about how is the law being depicted here? And I would suggest to you, primarily the first and second uses are in view when Paul writes these words. Primarily, he has in view the idea that these are boundaries and lines that to cross the commands of God would leave us guilty as transgressors. And in the mirroring aspect of the law would show our guilt in the face of God's holiness. And that's why in verses 8 and through 11, he says what he does. He has in mind this aspect of the use. He says, now we know that the law is good. Here's what didn't need to happen in Ephesus. If these teachers were misleading people, if they were twisting words, and if they were proving spiritually unhelpful, and not only that, but spiritually dangerous, no one needed to say, well, well, Timothy, maybe the law is the problem. Maybe the law is bad. Maybe the law, that's not the thing we should pay attention to. Maybe we should just set that aside and focus on something else entirely. Paul would not want you To look at the wrongful teaching of the false teachers and blame the law for it. It is not the fault of the law. He says, we know that the law is good. And I like that he pluralized this language, we know. This is not just Paul's idea. He knows that those rightly taught about the scriptures and rightly grounded in sound doctrine, they, along with the other confessing saints, we know that the law is good. He says as much in Romans 7:12. He says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's a lot of wonderful adjectives to describe the law. Romans 7:16 he calls the law good. Now pause for a moment and consider that's a big claim Paul's making. It's an important assumption in the whole arena of talking about the law of Moses to assume that the law is good. Now, how do we know that? 
And I would suggest to you the goodness of the law's content is connected to its origin or source as the source of all goodness and wisdom. Who is the law ultimately from? Now Moses gives a lot of commands in Exodus and in Leviticus. Moses reiterates a lot of instructions in Deuteronomy. The law is not sourced in Moses. Moses is the mediator. The source of the law is God. And if the commands come from God, how could they not be good? In other words, the goodness of the law of God is grounded in the altogether holiness and perfect righteousness of the lawgiver. In other words, the commands of God are wise and good and for our flourishing because they reflect the nature and character of the one who is perfectly wise, good, and holy. We know, he says, that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, you could imply here what certain scholars have implied, I think rightly so, that the false teachers are taking the law and using it for something other than what it was intended. There is therefore an intent in the usefulness of the law that's being violated. We, we would call this the, the, the uh, author's intent, and not just Paul as the author, but the divine author of Scripture that is intending his words to be understood in a certain way and his word to be applied in a certain way. This is a failure to interpret and understand rightly, it seems, in these false teachers' activity. They are using it unlawfully. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul's making a play on words. Can't you tell? Even in our English translations it comes across. Law and lawfully. So he's, he's talking about the, the content of the scriptures in the law of Moses. And that that is used and applied, appropriated in a right way. There's some good news here then. We don't dispense with the usefulness of the law when we come to know Christ. Paul believes as a Christian and as a proclaimer of the new covenant, you can use the law lawfully. Lawfully. And with this play on words, he seeks to make that clear. We also know that uh, in Romans and in Galatians, these are examples outside of 1 Timothy, where the effect of the law of God upon the hearts of sinners is to be explained in these letters. And in 1 Timothy 1, I think he's going along these same lines. They are... They are, they are devoting themselves, these uh, false teachers in Ephesus, devoting themselves to what he calls in verse 4, myths, endless genealogies that promote speculations. Their usefulness of the law doesn't promote sound doctrine. It doesn't stir up righteousness and obedience. Instead, it stirs up confusion and it diverts attention from the sound gospel of the Lord. It does not produce holy living. It does not produce glory and honor to God among the saints. Instead, the, other, the opposite of those things are achieved through the uh, efforts of these false teachers. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, we might get a little bit of a taste of more of what's in view in that context when these false teachers are at work. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the, insincer the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared, 
who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, perhaps the emphasis on those things and how people are devoting themselves to teachings that they ought not to should remind us of 1 Timothy 1. Teachers who are devoting themselves to silly things that are not grounded in rightly understanding the scriptures and that actually don't produce what's honoring to the Lord as a result. It could also be that these teachers are minimizing the obedience unto God required by the saints. And we could maybe imply this from 1 Timothy 4, where he says in verse 7, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. It seems that whatever these people are teaching are getting in the way of following Christ faithfully. Now, you, you can understand, like, that would be a real concern. That, that's not some small thing. This is affecting people's pursuit of Christ, to know him well and to follow him faithfully. These supposed teachers are obstructing that. Well, no wonder, Paul says, you need to move them out of the way. You need to warn them and prohibit what they're doing. He emphasizes to Timothy in chapter 4, train yourself for godliness and then set an example for the believers in chapter 4.12. Perhaps this is because however this law is being used, it is not cultivating a desire for obedience to Christ. And that is certainly a problem in the eyes of Paul. In verses 9 through 11, let's look at the role of the law. We saw the goodness of the law in verse 8. You know that the law, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And in verses 9 through 11, these verses all hang together under the idea of the role of the law. It's goodness in verse 8, and now it's role in verses 9 to 11. And as I talked about earlier, those various uses of the law that theologians have discussed that we see in Scripture, notice the one that stands out in the foreground here. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And, and as he's unpacking those phrases, you, you get the idea that here is the law aiming at those who do not follow Christ. I tell you something that's fascinating about this to me is that the law of God in the days of Moses was understood as part of their Sinai covenant. And you had various ceremonies and rituals, various offerings and sacrifices. We must insist, though, that there are commands given in the days of Moses that preceded the days of Moses as moral law. Because it reflects the character of God who's unchanging. In other words, certain things that are considered right and wrong that didn't start being right and wrong once you get to the days of Israel. Here are people not in the Sinai covenant in verses 9 to 11 that are in view. Here would no doubt be Gentiles and pagans and non-Israelites in view. What would be the value of the law? It would serve a convicting and heart-revealing function for them. They need the law of God not because it will save them. It will help them know they need to be saved. That's a very different way of thinking about the law. Not as a means of righteousness, but as a way of showing our true guilt and need before God. And so, he's, and so he says in verse 9, understanding this, I think he's explaining in verse 9 here how we know that the law is good because of something we understand. We know the law is good, understanding this, that it's not laid down for the just. 
Now, occasionally in the Gospels, there will be people passing themselves off as very righteous. They would be such like the Pharisees in uh, the Gospel of Matthew that are self-righteous and that are hypocrites and that seem to be something they're not. I don't take this to be a hypocritical righteousness, some sort of posing self-righteousness. I think when he says here the word just or the word righteous, he's talking about those truly converted. Those who've come to know God because they're confessing Christ alone as Savior. He has borne their sins upon the cross. Jesus has risen in victory from the dead on the third day. And they are trusting Christ. They look to him with faith. The law, he says, is laid down in verse 9 for the lawless and disobedient. It's an interesting turn of phrase. The law is for the lawless. It seems like the lawless don't think it is. Okay, the lawless are like, that's why we're called the lawless. There are, that's why our group is named the way it is, right? We, we get rid of the law. But see, the lawless are identified as the group that they are because God has made commands full of all his divine authority and wisdom. And they have said, thanks but no thanks, we will do it our way. We will ignore what you have said. We do not care about an authority over us. We're the authority. We are the lawless. The lawless and the disobedient are words that go together because they are held accountable before God and they defy his authority. His authority is not what they submit to. His laws are not what they love. And his commands are not what their lives should be ordered according to in their view. They are called disobedient. Again, these are not people in the Sinai covenant. We can think about those who've committed covenantal promises and pledges like the Israelites did to obey the various commands and laws of God, including all the various ceremonies and all the other civil commands. These are about realities preceding Sinai. That there is a God who has created people who are image bearers. And God's image bearers are accountable to him because he is righteous and authoritative over all things. And therefore to defy the Lord and to live as if God is not God is to live lawlessly and disobediently. And therefore the law is necessary because these are people who do not want the authority of God in their lives. And therefore the law is most needed to awaken their conscience. Which is seared by the stupidity of sin. And he says in verse 9 with another phrase. The ungodly and sinners. I don't think we're talking about a different group. I think that you could name this group with any of these terms, these unbelievers, the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane, all words that all seem to have some kind of angle at their defiance. They're ungodly, which means God is not one they want to serve. They're living in an ungodly manner, not in what conforms to God's words. They are sinners. And you say, well, aren't we all sinners though? These are not sinners trusting in Christ. These are not sinners repenting of sin. These are sinners who say, I want my sin and the more the better. I want to live my way. And these sinners are considered the ungodly. The unholy and profane. They take what is holy, God's good commands, and they disregard them. They live and think in an unholy way. They live in a profane way, which is to take what is sacred and to treat it as not sacred. It is to profane it, to bring, um, to bring um, disregard to it. 
These terms, lawless, disobedient, ungodly, and sinners, and unholy and profane, all seem to summarize the posture of people's hearts who need to have their consciences awakened with their need for forgiveness of sin. There is hope for the lawless. Isn't that good news? For the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners, the unholy and the profane. Oh, there is good news. And they need to know that there is good news. But if they do not see themselves as needing redemption of what use is a cross in their eyes. But if they know that in their hearts they have gone astray after what is displeasing to God. And that in their sinfulness they deserve judgment from God. Then the law for them, the law for them will be what takes them to Jesus as the means of their salvation. And not the law which has rightly convicted them of their sin. Now what happens in verses 9 and 10 is Paul begins to identify some specific sins. Up to this point, things felt quite general, right? Just looking at language like the disobedient. Well, I mean, a disobedient, that's a catch word that you can put all kinds of things inside, right? Or the language of sinners. All right, sinners doing what? Well, it hasn't told us yet, has it? But now, beginning at the end of verse 9 and into verse 10, some specific sins are going to be identified. So I'm going to read these out. He says, for those who strike their fathers and mothers... For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I think that that's Paul's way of saying at the very end, I'm not giving you an exhaustive list. I'm not telling you. All, like this letter would be so long, right? All right, so he's saying I'm giving you a list of vices. And I just need you to use your brains, your wisdom, to recognize whatever else would be contrary to sound doctrine. You just add that to this list. So he says in verse 9, in the first specific sin, For those who strike their fathers and mothers. This kind of sin is identified in Exodus 21 as those who would uh, posture themselves toward their parents in a way that would be to curse them and to act for their downfall. And it is, an, it is an expression of the fifth commandment being violated. Think about the fifth commandment among the ten commandments. And then I really want you to think about the ten commandments a lot more in the next few minutes. This fifth commandment says, you shall honor your father and your mother. This line here, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, we could say, well, then they're not doing that, are they? If honoring your father and mother is the commandment, striking your father and mother is the violation of the fifth commandment. Now let's look at the next uh, word that he says there. He says the word murderers. Now the murderers, following this idea of dishonoring parents, well that's interesting because it turns out that after the fifth commandment is the sixth commandment. And the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. This is a prohibition against the unlawful taking of life. There are many cases in the scripture of lawful taking of life. That is a different sermon. This is the unlawful taking of life, considered murder. These lawless or these sinners can demonstrate their rebellion against God by breaking the fifth commandment or by breaking the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And now, after mentioning the fifth and the sixth commandments, I bet you know where we're going next. In verse 10, he says, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. Now, those two expressions are both 
tied to the seventh commandment. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's, he's taking the commandments of, of those which relate creature to creature, image bearer to image bearer. You know, the opening commandments of the ten are about not having any other gods before God. Not crafting an idol image to represent God, to worship it. Not taking the name of the Lord in vain. Remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy. None of those are so specifically laid out. There have been some commentators over the years that have tried to tie the opening pairs of phrases of uh, the the, uh, lawless and disobedient and the ungodly and the sinners and the unholy and profane to the opening four commandments. I'm not as convinced that fits so nicely. That might be right. I'm not leaning there this morning. I'm I'm thinking especially, however, that this gets specific enough at the end of verse 9 into verse 10 to tie it to the second part of the Ten Commandments. Not only are these people living in defiance of God, to reject divine authority will lead to chaos from neighbor to neighbor. It will lead to chaos from neighbor to neighbor. When we defy the authority of the Lord, we will be inhibited from loving others the way they ought to be loved. The way they ought to be cared for. The way they ought to be dignified and respected. The way their their persons and their possessions and their present and their future ought to be considered and regarded. People who live in rebellion against God, there's no surprise that their thought toward neighbor is very low. For them, neighbor is not someone to be loved. Someone to just be taken advantage of. I mean, think about striking father or mother. A child who is committing physical assault upon his parents. He's not showing love to his parents. And in this case as well in verse 9, when it says here after striking fathers and mothers, murderers. Well, this is someone who has such a, a low regard of human life that their outworking of their internal hostility results in the termination of an image bearer's life unjustly. This is the outworking in a fallen world Of a society and individuals who reject the authority of God. When you reject the divine law of God upon our conscience and upon our hearts. The natural law. God's moral commands. Right and wrong. When people's consciences are seared and what they want is rejected. Or what God wants for them is rejected. The outworking of that brings consequences in our interpersonal societal sphere. We see this all around us. This is, I mean, just almost to pick up a newspaper. I don't know how many newspapers are honestly picked up these days, but maybe there still are a few from time to time. But however you get your news and now all the stories that are shared at the water cooler, you, you have plenty of anecdotes to see that when the authority of God is disregarded, rebellion against God leads to chaos among God's image bearers. Because sin brings disorder. It brings disorder to our hearts. Our relationship with God is considered one, not of reconciliation, but of alienation from God and our rebellion. And then our image bearer to image bearer relationships characterized by strife and by conflict. Just look at what violates the seventh commandment here in verse 10. The sexually immoral and then an example of that, men who practice homosexuality. I take these two expressions to both be tied to the seventh commandment. Now, Jesus recognizes in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that the violation of the seventh commandment begins inwardly 
He says, if you have looked at somebody with lust in your heart, that is a violation of the seventh commandment. He's recognizing here, Paul does in verse 10, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. These are expressions of that seventh commandment's violation from image bearer to image bearer. Sexual immorality is not left general here. It is specified in verse 10 with men who practice homosexuality. That this is part of the violation of the moral and natural law of God. That in Genesis 1 and 2, the order of creation and the grounds of God's design for man and woman in sexuality is that men and women in the covenant of marriage honor God in this expression. But outside of that, it is a dishonor to God. And one of the ways that natural law is further violated is when opposite sex relationships are abandoned for same sex relationship. And in verse 10, men who practice homosexuality are violators of the seventh commandment as a category of the sexually immoral. So I take these opening words of verse 10 to give you the category of the violation of the seventh commandment, the sexually immoral. And then an example within that, a sub-example of that sexually immoral commandment, or sexually immoral violation. Men who practice homosexuality. This is not the only place Paul mentions this. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, he talks about this. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, he talks about this. One of the ways human rebellion works itself out is it rejects what God has designed. One of the ways human rebellion and defiance of God's authority works itself out is it says, but here's what I want and here's who I want. So I'm going to do it this way. And according to verse 10, this is an example of the vices in this long list of Of what is behavior contrary to sound doctrine. He gets to that much more explicitly at the end of verse 10. After this men who practice homosexuality line. Notice it says in verse 10. The word enslavers. To enslave is to take and to bind against one's will. This is a violation of the eighth commandment. So we're moving in order, right? Fifth commandment, sixth commandment, seventh commandment. The eighth commandment says, you shall not what? You shall not steal. An enslaver is someone who violates the eighth commandment. Now, some people have charged the Apostle Paul for not having any problem with human slavery. I would just want them to look, however, at 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says in this verse, in verse 10, that enslaving people is contrary to sound doctrine. It is not right. In fact, it is wrong. This would include enslaving and kidnapping and any other kind of theft that doesn't lead to the theft of a person that would be a violation of the Eighth Commandment. To violate someone's personal property and possessions. To take their very person or one that belongs to them. It is to encroach upon them in such a way that you would say the Eighth Commandment has been violated. So we see here the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, the idea of enslavers, and now the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is is, uh, invoked in our minds with the terms liars and perjurers. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness. That's right. You shall not bear false witness, which means your words are to be truthful. And the commandment in its spirit and fulfillment is violated. When people use their words to lie and to perjure themselves, to insist that they're telling the truth, whether it's in a one-on-one discussion or whether it's in a legal context uh, where you're bearing witness and testimony. 
our words are to be reliable. And if we are liars and perjurers, we are violators of the ninth commandment. Can't we contemplate, and we don't have to think about it for very long before we realize socially, the outworking of chaos and despair and depravity that happens when the natural law of God is violated. And when the moral law of God is cast aside by the ungodly, and instead of obeying the Lord, there is instead a refusal to acknowledge the authority of parents in the home. A pursuit of what is sexually immoral and even a defiance of what is of God's design. Those who are violating the property and persons of others to violate the Eighth Commandment. That our words in oaths and promises and handshakes and just general conversation could be brought into doubt because of the tendencies of sinners to manipulate and deceive. This is not all that Paul could say. He finishes by saying in verse 10, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now you might wonder, well, what about the 10th commandment? All right, ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. The 10th commandment says you shall not covet. And I think one of the reasons that scholars have suggested that's uh, plausible to me is that the 10th commandment is primarily an internal thing to identify. Coveting is not something you necessarily see outwardly, right? In fact, sexual immorality and thievery and false witness, all of those things are outworkings of a heart that wants something it should not. So that you shall not covet really undergirds something in all of these commandments to one degree or another. Paul believes that the moral law of God indicts sinners as guilty. That if you take the commandments of God and you look at your heart in the mirror of the word of God, we in our hearts, words and actions have fallen short of what God has created his image bearers to be and to do. And not only that, this is contrary, he says, to sound doctrine, these sins, these things, so that believers ought not to walk in them. Sinners ought to be convicted in seeing the word of God as a mirror in front of their heart. And believers ought to know that in coming to know Christ, this is not to characterize our lives. So if we find ourselves living in ways to defy our parents or in sexual immorality or in thievery or in the wrongful, deceitful use of words, we should recognize this morning that according to verse 10, that is contrary to the Christian faith. It is contrary to what Paul calls sound doctrine. It seems that these false teachers were not concerned about sound doctrine. And if Paul is emphasizing the goodness of the law and how these things indict sinners, could it be that the wrongful use of the law in Ephesus by these false teachers involved a kind of tolerance of and even green lighting of these very behaviors forbidden by God? This could be not only the wrongful use of the law in chapter 1, but the reasons Paul tells Timothy to train yourself for godliness and to have nothing to do with these irreverent, silly myths. A pressing concern on our minds if we confess to know Jesus. Friends, it must be this question. What must I be doing in my life to pursue and honor Christ faithfully? What does that look like? What does it look like at my job? What does it look like in my home? What does it look like in my church? What does it look like in my habits with my, ta- my laptop or my iPad? What does it look like in every sphere of my life, individually and interpersonally, for me to be faithful to Christ? 
We must consider those questions. Those seem to not be what was on the four minds of the false teachers. And if it was not on the, uh, the forethinking of the false teachers, then he recognizes here a life not considering these questions is one contrary to sound doctrine. Now, our last verse says that this sound doctrine, this sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now, I argued earlier, we should not pit against each other the good news of the gospel and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I want us to think about. That when we are saved by grace, because it's all of grace, when we are saved by the mercy of God, because it is all of the mercy of God, and His steadfast love has come upon us to bring new life and new direction, it leads to a life in step with the gospel we profess. And that life lived in step with the gospel is what we would call that life in keeping with sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It's what Paul would say to Peter in Galatians chapter 2 when he confronted him for uh, Peter separating from Gentiles after some social and internal pressure among some, uh, with some Jews who had arrived. He said in Galatians chapter 2, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas. And then he confronts Peter. So we're, we're trying to draw a distinction here. There's the gospel, and then there is what is in step with the gospel. It's in keeping with the truth of the gospel. So we, we are saying, we must obey Christ. We are not saying we obey Christ to get God to save us and love us. We say God has saved us and loved us in grace and mercy, poured out on his beloved son. And now, in step with the gospel, claiming to know Christ means something. Claiming to be a disciple of Jesus means something. It leads to a life that is in in accordance with sound doctrine, not contrary to it. In accordance with the gospel, not contradicting it and undermining it. You know what Paul is concerned about? That the way these people are living could undermine the gospel. I mean, he's not concerned about some light and tangential thing. He's saying, Timothy, you've got to stop these false teachers. You've got to tell them not to teach what's different from the sound doctrine you heard. You've got to charge them. You need to exhort them. Because the way they are going to be living and the things they're devoting themselves to, it takes away from the gospel. And that is wicked. So Timothy is to be rightly encouraged and rightly exhorted to do this hard and necessary thing that in accordance with the gospel, these people will live. In step with the truth of the gospel, they will conduct themselves. Now, Paul doesn't just say in accordance with the gospel. It's such a Paul kind of thing to do to add a really great phrase to what the gospel is. It is the gospel. Just listen to this. This is so amazing. It is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That, that's the only time in all of his letters he attaches that phrase. But what is this gospel? The gospel reveals, it is the gospel of the glory of God. Something of the glory of God is being made known in this gospel. Now what is the gospel we profess? The good news of the gospel, as the gospels, the book of Acts, and the letters of the New Testament make clear, the gospel is the good news of the mercy of God upon sinners because Jesus has taken their place on the cross. So that there is mercy for salvation because Jesus has borne the judgment I deserved. In other words, 
I can welcome the indictment of the law because it has made me flee to Jesus. In other words, I need not be afraid of being condemned by falling short of all the things identified in the commandments Paul's alluding to in 1 Timothy 1. Because I'm not saved by the law. No one's ever been saved by the law. It's always been by grace through faith in the Old and the New Testaments. And that means our unchanging, immutable, and gracious God has given us the good news of his Savior. It is a revelation of his saving glory. The glory on display is a glory of mercy. It isn't a glory of judgment. It's a glory of saving grace. That's the glory in this gospel. It is a gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now we might think of ourselves as those blessed of God. It might be a little unusual for you to think of God as blessed. Just think about this with me for a moment, because this is not an often occurring phrase in Paul's uh, letters either, that this is a gospel of the glory of the blessed God. We imagine that we would pray, God bless us. We want to be blessed. Calling God blessed here is a way of talking about God's happiness and fullness in every way. God lacks nothing. He has no need. He has no deficiency. And he can bless because he, as the blessed one, is the source of all of it. He can grant goodness in life as the source of all of it. He can bring light and he can grant wisdom because he is the source of all of it. I think this is Paul's way of saying not only do we call upon the the Lord to bless us, we know he can and does because he himself is the source of all of it. He is the blessed God. Joyful in the most maximal way. Not one way one day, another way a different day. You know, we can be so fickle as human beings. But God is not a God of human emotions in this way. He is the unchanging God. He is the God transcendent and glorious. Full of blessing and honor. He is the blessed God. And that is really good news. He's not gloomy. He's not downcast. He is full of life and vitality, vibrancy, power, and blessing. And His life and His goodness has poured out upon us in the mercy of His Son. The gospel of glory. Paul says, this gospel is that with which I have been entrusted Why is Paul so concerned that the gospel not be obscured and undermined? Because God has set Paul apart to be an apostle of this gospel. I mean, who entrusted Paul? Paul's mom and dad? No. Paul's siblings, his friends, some employer in Tarsus? No one entrusted Paul with the gospel but God. So if this is the gospel Paul has been entrusted with and Paul spots that the gospel is under threat by some sort of false teaching and false living, Paul's not going to let it go. He's not going to let it go because it ought to be the glory of God's saving mercy on display, not the silly myths and controversies that these false teachers in Ephesus are committed to. It needs to be the gospel because the gospel exalts Jesus and Paul wants to live to exalt Jesus. And he wants to walk in step with this gospel he professes. Let's pray.